is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. More than 600 people died on Colorado's roadways last year. It's due to an epidemic of distracted driving, says the state's transportation director. Automakers and entrepreneurs are creating unique ways to prevent distracted driving. Shad Balch is with General Motors. The automaker has created a teen driver system in its cars. And Scott Tibbetts is CEO of Katasi, based in Boulder. He's working on a module that prevents texting while driving. Welcome to the program. Ah, Thank you. Good morning. Shad, let's start with you. Uh, GM's teen driver system was introduced relatively recently. Does it actually prevent distracted driving? It does. There are a few compelling ways that once you activate the system, it entices kids to not pick up their device, to not get distracted or otherwise take their eyes off the road, uh, trying to fumble with things or get distracted. But most importantly, it gives tools or it gives parents, rather, the tools to have conversations about the way that their kids drive so that they could instruct them in how to drive safely. So basically, the system gives a report card to the parents when the kids get back, explaining various elements of the way they drove, how fast they went, whether or not they departed out of a lane, whether or not they followed too closely behind somebody else and the forward collision alert was activated. So it gives this very concise report card and talking points for parents to be able to explain the ways to prevent uh, unsafe driving. So those are some of the features for the parents, but what about the, the children in the car, the, the teens in the car? Are they getting stuff in real time? They are. So they will get audible alerts if they exceed the speed limit that the parents set in the car. Also, if they do not buckle their seatbelts, their radio or any device that's paired to the system will not operate. So there's a lot, and you know, every kid loves to have the, the radio playing while they drive. So those things are what will entice the kids to, one, be aware if they're driving unsafely, and two, to buckle up, to be safe, and use safe driving habits while they're underway. Now, is this a trend that uh, just General Motors is looking at, or is this something nationally or internationally that, that automakers are looking to put in their vehicles? I mean, everybody is trying to figure out the best way to prevent distracted driving. It is the number one cause of fatalities in for teens um, in about, about, by about two-thirds. So if you're between the ages of 16 to 19, you're more likely, three times more likely, to be in a fatal crash than if you're 20 years and older. So this is a big problem. It also, I mean, this is one of the most expensive technologies overall in a vehicle, is how to keep the occupants safe. So this kind of a system, it's now spread across several models within the Chevrolet lineup, um, is one way that we address that. And, and there are other apps that help with this as well, other products. Now, Scott, Colorado's Matter spoke about your product a couple years ago. Yeah. Uh, it's called Groove. Can you briefly explain what it does and what led you to create it? Well, what we found is um, cars now are getting connected to the cloud. They're connected to the Internet. Uh, we have a module that does that. But GM's cars, for instance, are connected. And with that connection, you can find out very quickly who's driving. You can connect with a telco like Sprint or Verizon. Tell them who's driving. And within 15 seconds of starting to drive, they can stop the distracting things at the network level. They don't even get into the car. So you're stopping WhatsApp, you're stopping iMessage, you're stopping Pokemon Go. But you might let through Spotify, you might let through um, music and navigation, things that are considered safe. Now, the technology isn't yet available here in the U.S., but you plan to roll it out in Australia later this year. And I understand the California legislature is also looking at your technology. Isn't that right? Yes. Uh, we actually are. We have been piloting in the U.S. with a with a 
carrier here in the U.S., and we've been piloting in Australia with a leading carrier there. In both cases, we're going to be rolling out in the U.S. in September um, with this carrier uh, here in the U.S. and also uh, in Australia probably later in the year. Now, for its part, Colorado's Department of Transportation says enforcement and awareness are key in combating distracted driving. Uh, Spokesman Sam Cole says the agency will launch a major public awareness campaign this summer and is working to lower instances of distracting driving by teens. The state does have a total ban on cell phone use by teens under 18. The law also limits the number of friends that can be in a car with them. Since 2002, these efforts to prevent teens from driving distracted have cut the fatality rate in half for this age group. CDOT says it welcomes any technology that lowers traffic deaths. But, Scott, your product has seen some delays in getting to the marketplace generally. Why is that? The interesting thing about it and the reason it's effective is that we actually partner with the telcos. Mm. So we tell them and they stop it. They have those switches in their network to turn things off, but it costs about on the order of $2 million to enable the technology. So it's important for us to show them a business case. And that takes a while. Telcos, that develops. It's taken a couple of years with a couple of the telcos. And then that's led to maybe speeding it up through the legislation we're talking about. Shad, are there challenges in developing this this system and these systems and getting people to actually use it? It may sound cool, but to actually get it into action may be a bit difficult for people to take on. Yeah, the biggest challenge right now is just making sure that, that the public is aware that these technologies exist. So this is a conversation that our dealers will have with customers when they come into the showroom. And it's something that is, is, is you know, ready to go the minute you buy the car. It's integrated into the car it works with key components of the car, such as uh, it, you, the kids cannot disable any of the safety features, the stability track, the um, uh, lane departure warnings, all of the collision alerts, et cetera. So all of that is inherent in the car, and it's, it's part of the original equipment um, that doesn't need anything else to activate it. It just it comes on the minute the, the child uses their programmed key fob to get into the car. But yes, awareness about this technology is where we are right now. That is what we need to, to work hard on is to make sure that people know that this exists. Another safety feature that the car has is uh, the use of Apple CarPlay or Android Auto, which basically it mirrors the device onto the screen in the center of the car to keep the eyes on the road. So it also prevents people, the kids from wanting to pick up their phone to check a text message, for example. All of that now can be replicated on the car system to where it's audible. And it prevents people from picking up, being just getting to the habit of picking up their device because that's still happening. And then, Scott, what about your product? Will it be integrated in cars? Are you working with with automobile makers to to get this stuff to market? There's two U.S. automakers that we're working with. And the idea is it complements very nicely the kind of systems that Chad's talking about, where you actually have ability to keep the distractions out of the car, voice to text. Uh, has a high level of distraction that goes along with it. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that feel that let's just keep those distractions out of the car and keep people focused on the drive. And it's not just, you know, teens. It's, it's oh. adults as well. I mean, for both both of you. Yeah, and we actually do focus groups yeah. with FedEx drivers. You know, we say, so who's texting? You know, because they're looking into the cars. And what's fascinating is they're saying probably teens aren't texting as much as adults are. It's the, it's the, the commuters and the soccer moms that are tending to be the ones that are texting as much or more than the teens. Fascinating info. So you're, you're going out and getting FedEx drivers to look, because they're higher up, looking yeah. into cars? Yes. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, you know, with those kind of informal focus groups also tell us that the social contract's working, and when you have more than one person in the car, people aren't texting and driving. You know, it's like watching your dad drink a shot. Well, you don't let him do that. But when people are alone, 
Yeah, it's amazing how many people are doing it. Shad, are there other safety features that GM could implement besides those that combat distracted driving? For instance, seatbelt use. Uh, CDOT says the state's seatbelt use rate is 84 percent, which is far below the national average. Yeah, that's a very good point. And buckling up is probably the number one safety feature that you could do. And this system, like I said, it, uh, it prevents any audio from working in the car until the seatbelts are buckled. There's annoying audible chirps that the drivers and all passengers will hear until their seatbelt is buckled. So, yes, those technologies are in the works right now um, because that is probably the number one way to help save lives. And I'll say that Colorado currently does not have a primary seatbelt law, which allows police to pull over motorists not wearing a seatbelt. Currently, a driver has to be stopped for another reason before a seatbelt use ticket can be issued. Scott, what about you? Do you think enough is being done to raise awareness around teen distracted driving or distracted driving overall? I, I think uh, I think people have done a tremendous job of raising awareness. Uh, the nature of the beast, though, the nature of this is it's like a bag of potato chips being opened in the car. Everybody thinks this one won't kill me. And whether it's an adult or a teen, it's like, OK, I can just squeeze this one in. It's really important. And, well, you do that 100 times and you kill somebody. So I think it needs to go far beyond awareness into getting the distractions out of the car. That's, of course, our... Our way of thinking. Yeah. And, and Shad, GM is working on self-driving technology. Do you think the current technology to prevent and limit distracted driving will one day be obsolete, maybe in the not-so-distant future? Well, I mean, that's the idea. Hopefully that we can, you know, very soon innovate our way to where it's safe for everybody, whether you're inside the car, outside the car, in another car. The moment we get to the point where the car can actually communicate and spot obstacles in front, whether it be pedestrians or other cars, the rate of incident will drop dramatically. And I think we'll start to see that roll out in big urban cities where there's a bit more of a controlled environment, where it's uh, slow speed urban driving, where the car can actually play a bigger role in controlling what it, what, how it operates, when it stops, when it applies brakes, etc. So that is definitely going to happen. And what about you, Scott? I mean, with more and more vehicles that can drive themselves, <laughs> won't your product one day be obsolete? Oh, we would love that. I, honest to goodness. It, you know, it's going to be 10 or 15, 20 years before it takes over the inventory. There's a lot to be done between here and there. But, oh, my gosh, 20 years from now and we're just sitting around going, remember distracted driving? Wasn't that a horrible thing? Glad we're done with that. Shad, Scott, thanks for being here. Our pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Shad Bulch is with General Motors. You can see a demonstration of GM's teen driver system this weekend at the Denver Auto Show. Scott Tibbetts is CEO of Katasi, based in Boulder. He's working on a module that prevents texting while driving. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The University of Denver men's hockey team is back in the national spotlight and hoping for a championship win. After beating Notre Dame 6-1 last night, the Pioneers will face Minnesota Duluth tomorrow night in Chicago. Tonight, the team's captain, Will Butcher, will find out if he's the winner of the Hobie Baker Outstanding Player Award. DU's assistant hockey coach, David Carl, joins us from Chicago. His brother, Matt, won the Baker Award in 2006. David, you guys are about to go to your only practice before the national championship game. How does that feel? Uh, first of all, thanks for having me on, Nathan. Um, it feels good. We're uh, we're really excited about the opportunity uh, here in Chicago to add to the great tradition that is Denver hockey. And uh, it starts tomorrow night against uh, Minnesota Duluth. Yeah, and DU won back-to-back championships in 2004 and 2005, but hasn't played in the championship game since. Can you take us back into the locker room following last night's game when you knew you were going to be playing for this year's title? 
Yeah, I mean, it's uh, we've had a real focused approach all year with our group. Excuse me. And uh, our, especially our senior class, we're led by nine seniors. And uh, last year we went to the Frozen Four in Tampa and uh, lost in the first round uh, to North Dakota. And I think that, that loss has really stung our group and and really driven them to to have the consistency and the type of success that we've had this year. And so we've been here before to the Frozen Four um, with this group, and we're, we were excited to get back. But it's been a very business-like approach. Um, you know, we, we weren't uh, relishing in the win last night for too long uh, before we started getting ready for Duluth already. Um, so it's a real driven uh, business-like attitude here and uh, amongst our staff and amongst our group as well. This year's team is led by defenseman Will Butcher, who has been nominated for the Hobie Baker Award given to the nation's top player. How do you measure his importance to the team? Yeah, I mean, he's uh, he's the, stir, or the uh, straw that stirs our drink. Um, you know, he's, he's our best player. If we didn't have him, we'd be at a huge loss. And uh, He paces us both offensively and defensively um, with his puck decisions, how he breaks pucks out and also how he breaks plays up defensively. Um, and beyond that, in the locker room, he's a real calming influence on our group. He's, he's the leader. He's our captain. Um, and he's responsible for that real business-like attitude uh, that our group has. We don't get rattled by many things, um, and I think they look to Will, and they see that calming presence, and, and that's the effect he's had on our team all year long. Yeah. Now, the last time a DU player won the award, it was your older brother, Matt, who went on to play more than a decade in the National Hockey League. What do you remember about the buildup to that announcement? Uh, you know, he, he had an unbelievable first two years at Denver, uh, capped off by two championships. And uh, his junior year, he had a great individual year uh, playing with Paul Stasny, uh, who now plays for St. Louis, still playing in the NHL. And, um, you know, I just it was an unbelievable year for him uh, statistically and individually. And um, it was really exciting to watch that and support him um, as his younger brother uh, through the whole process. Uh, obviously you didn't get to coach your brother, but you are Will Butcher's position coach. What are some of the similarities between the two of them? Uh, I just think their hockey sense, how they break pucks out, um, how they can turn uh, a great defensive play into quick offense for our team um, is very similar. Uh, both probably similar leaders in the sense that they, they're not overly vocal and they just kind of go about their business and lead with their, their actions and try and be calming influences um, to, their, to their teams. And it's hard for, for a player to control a game at that offensive end, but Will's managed to do so on a consistent basis. This year he's try, tied for second nationally in scoring by a player. What, what is it that he does that other players can't do? Uh, you know, he sees the ice at a high level. Anytime he gets the puck, he's never looking down at the puck. He's, his eyes are always up. He always knows where all the other nine players on the ice are. And it really allows him to survey things quickly and, and uh, allows his decision-making process. I would compare it to a quarterback checking down uh, different receivers and Tom Brady sitting in the pocket looking at who's open. And um, his eyes are always downfield. He's never given up on a play. Um, even though someone's after him, his eyes don't deter from looking at what the play is to be open. And even sometimes he's giving false information 
like a quarterback would so that another guy that he really wants to get the puck to ends up being open. Um, so he just, he thinks the game at a real high level um, and it allows him to give the puck to his teammates with all kinds of time to make plays and have success. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're talking with David Carl, assistant coach for the DU Pioneers, who are playing tomorrow for the NCAA National Championship versus Minnesota Duluth. How do you coach a player like this? How, do you just let him go on, on, on the uh, on the ice and, and do his thing? Or? Yeah, yeah, you give him little things here and there, but again, his he's been here four years. His brain is so elite um, that you really trust your your best players have to be your best players and. And Will's been that for us all year. And um, and so, yeah, we just try and give him the tools uh, to be able to go out and have success every night. Matt signed with the San Jose Sharks following his junior year at DU. Will is a senior, and he was drafted by the local NHL team, the Colorado Avalanche, in the fifth round of the 2013 draft. How long do you think it'll be before we see him in an Avs sweater? Uh, you know, he's, he's definitely got that ability to play in the National Hockey League, and um, that's going to be his decision um, as to when that's going to happen. But uh, it's, it can be as soon as he wants it to be, that's for sure. Yeah. Now, like Matt, you were hoping to play for DU and perhaps eventually in the NHL, but uh, that wasn't to be. What happened? Uh, so I was diagnosed with a heart condition uh, the summer before my freshman year at Denver um, and unfortunately had to end my career, but was fortunate enough to have my scholarship honored by the university and uh, came on to the staff at Denver as a student assistant coach for four years and uh, really grateful for that opportunity. It allowed me to get into the coaching industry um, and then got a job right out of uh, graduating from Denver to USHL. And I uh, was fortunate enough to get hired by Jim Montgomery here at Denver uh, two years into being in the USHL. And was this around or during the day before the NHL draft, something like that, right? Yeah, it was. Uh, it, was at, it was at the NHL draft combine, and then got official word that uh, was going to have to retire the day before the draft. Um, yeah. After you graduated, Montgomery came in, and you had an interview with him for the job. How concerned were you that he would want to start fresh with an entirely new staff? Well, I was actually in Green Bay of the USHL um, during Jim's first year, and uh, so he had Steve Miller on staff. He left. Um, to go be a head coach in the USHL, and that's the time when I interviewed with Jim uh, for the opening position. Let's get back to, to tomorrow night. Earlier this season, you split a two-game series with Minnesota Duluth. What are you going to take from those games into Saturday? Yeah, I mean, they're gonna be, it's going to be a great hockey game Saturday night. I mean, they're, uh, us and them have been going neck-and-neck neck all year, um, being the top overall team in the country, and um, it's going to be a real hard-fought game. It's going to be a physical game. Um, you know, we're, we're really looking forward to it. Now, Matt was on the DU teams that won titles in 2004 and 2005. Do you need to win tomorrow night to at least start keeping up with your older brother? Uh, no, I think we both support <laughs> each other um, in different ways. and uh, He'll be here tomorrow night rooting for us, and uh, he's as much a pioneer now as he was then. Uh, just as I was then as I am now. So uh, for us, it's, it's bigger than us. It's bigger than our brotherly rivalry. And uh, we just want what's best for Denver, and we're excited to be able to add to the great tradition that is Denver hockey. David, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Nathan. 
David Carls, an assistant coach for the University of Denver's men's hockey team. He joined us by cell phone from uh, Chicago, where the Pioneers will be playing for their eighth national championship tomorrow night. The team is led by senior defenseman Will Butcher, who is nominated for the Hobie Baker Award given to the nation's best player. The winner will be announced tonight. The Colorado Rockies baseball team hosts their season opener today against the Los Angeles Dodgers, and they enter this three-game series at Coors Field with some momentum. But can the team keep it going? CPR's Vic Vela recently spoke with Denver Post Rockies beat reporter Patrick Saunders while he was traveling with the team. Patrick, opening day at Coors Field is always exciting for fans, but the reality is this is a team that hasn't had a winning record since 2010. Is there finally room for optimism on Blake Street? You know, Vic, there really is, and I, and I don't say that lightly because I've had to suffer through some really horrible baseball the last few years. The farm system has not only yielded really good position talent, which has been the case for a number of years, but finally the Rockies pitching, uh, particularly the starting pitching, shows a lot of promise. And they they really did reconfigure a bullpen that was just god-awful last year. So this is the first time, as you mentioned, since 2010, when I really think the Rockies can say that they are certainly have designs on being a winning team and possibly even a playoff team. And you mentioned that pitching, uh, Patrick. Last year's starting pitchers gave up nearly five runs a game. So it's probably a good sign for a lot of Rockies fans that that starting pitching staff and bullpen is going to be in pretty good shape. Definitely. You know, they, they suffered a big blow when Chad Bettis, their veteran right-hander, is going through a bout with testicular cancer. They thought that Chad was in the clear. He came to spring training. Everything looked good. And then it found out the cancer had spread. He's undergoing chemotherapy now. Uh, He believes he can come back at some point late in the season. Uh, That remains to be seen. But even given that, they have a lot of young, good, powerful arms who don't seem to be afraid of pitching at Coors Field. Time will tell whether that's true or not (laughs) and whether they they get the shakes once they get in there. But on paper, this is the best starting rotation they've had in a long, long time. Well, you mentioned hitting at Coors Field. It's a hitter's paradise. and, And on this Rockies team, it's a young, talented lineup. So scoring runs shouldn't be a problem for this team, right? No, not at all. I would put this lineup that the Rockies are putting out there. I'd match it up with any in the National League. D.J. LeMayhew, the defending batting champion. Charlie Blackman, their leadoff hitter, hit 29 home runs from the leadoff spot last year. Nolan Arenado is a legitimate MVP candidate. Trevor Story, who hit 27 homers in 97 games last year, is back for his second season. So up and down the lineup, opposing pitchers are not going to get much of a breather against this lineup. If it stays healthy, I think it definitely could be one of the most impressive and potent lineups in the National League. Well, a lot of fans will like to hear that. Uh, Patrick, uh, what about Bud Black? The Rockies have a new manager this season. What's his management style, and how are players taking to him? Well, I'll say this for Bud. He surprised me in a number of ways. He's always been known as one of the most likable, charismatic managers in the game. Uh, but I didn't know he was he was quite so creative, and I didn't know he was quite so hands-on. 
he does a lot of team building, stuff that may seem kind of corny, but actually seems to work with the players. They brought in a 1,600-pound steer and had some of the young pitchers have to describe where the cuts of meat come from. <laughs> that being an ode to the Monford family history, the Rockies owner's family history of uh, meat packing. So that was funny. They had an archery contest. They had a big ping pong tournament where the finals was attended by everybody and they had it up on the scoreboard and it was a lot of fun. And the players don't seem jaded or indifferent to it. They're really embracing it. And I think it's been good team building. But from what I can gather, he's also a pretty harsh taskmaster. He's going to demand a lot from him. And I think that's a good thing. So a balance of fun and hard work, it sounds like, from uh, Rockies manager Bud Black this season. Well, Patrick, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. Thank you, Vic. I appreciate the time. That was Denver Post-Rockies beat reporter Patrick Saunders, who is also the president of the Baseball Writers Association of America. He spoke with CPR's Vic Vela. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. And I'm Ryan Warner. You help keep the conversation going after the show with your feedback. And let's hear it now in loud and clear. Last week, we reported from the San Luis Valley on opioid addiction. And we used the term getting clean to refer to drug users who were trying to get off drugs. Madison Unsworth called in about the use of that. She works with people struggling with addiction at the Colorado Health Network. I was a little bit disappointed to hear of stigmatizing word choice being used by the reporter. Um, and we tried to avoid using the word clean when someone's decided to be sober because that associates anyone using drugs with the word dirty. We ran that feedback by our colleagues at NPR in Washington, curious if they had a policy we might follow. According to NPR's standards editor, there's no explicit rule at NPR about this, except to avoid words that can be hurtful. And so with that in mind, it's an expression we'll avoid in the future. Right now, most bars and nightclubs in Colorado have to close at 2 a.m. A bill at the legislature would allow local communities to set their own closing times. We debated this with the owners of two night spots. Listener Andrew Eberhard of Denver thought we failed to raise an important question. He wrote in an email, quote, You should have asked about drug use and how remaining open late would affect the use of amphetamines and such. The thing I'd be worried about by letting bars and clubs remain open longer wouldn't be alcohol, but rather risky illegal drugs. A follow-up now to the story of a professor at Community College of Aurora who says he was fired for refusing to implement a new initiative at the school. It was designed to help students be more successful, but this particular educator, Nate Bork, argued it lowered academic standards. The American Association of University Professors investigated and has issued a report. It found that in firing Bork, the college showed disregard for academic freedom. The president of the community college system in Colorado, Nancy McCallan, responds this way. My understanding is that this particular process to change the curriculum at Community College of Aurora was um, very faculty-driven. And this program is being recognized nationally for the efforts that our faculty have made to help improve success and completion for all students. 
on to another story. To mark the start of baseball season, we recently re-aired my visit to Denver's Ballpark Museum, which houses a lot of Denver Bears memorabilia. That is the minor league team that preceded the Rockies. The conversation brought back memories for listener Camille Ross. My dad played minor league baseball. My grandfather played for St. Louis professionally. My uncles played minor league ball, and we grew up going to the Denver Bears baseball games. I remember them well. A man in Boulder County has a webcam pointed at his front yard. He goes by the name Mr. Grass, and writer Bradford Pearson profiled him in a national magazine. I asked Pearson about the people from around the world who log in to quite literally watch grass grow. You know, there would be times where there were maybe five or six people. There would be times where there's 50 people, and you look down, and you can go through the comments and see if somebody just said, oh, you know, the milk just got dropped off or the mail just got dropped off. And, uh, of course, there's there's trolls in the comments and people that are saying this is – it's hard to tell because sometimes people say this is the greatest website ever, and you have no idea whether they're actually being uh, facetious or whether they're being truthful. <laughs> After that conversation aired, Mr. Grass himself emailed us with a preview of exciting things to come. In a couple of weeks, he'll mow for the first time this season. It'll be more exciting, he says, than the Rockies' opening game. This week, we also heard from the anonymous street artist in Boulder who signs his work, Smile. He paints on buildings, newspaper stands, even electrical boxes. These are images of cats or portraits of people. Because he doesn't get permission to paint, his work is illegal. After the show, we received a comment on the CPR News Facebook page, pointing us to the coastal town of Dunedin, Florida, and its own mysterious street art. So we reached out to Dunedin's mayor, Julie Ward-Bujalski. She told us that in 2009... These little oranges started popping up on people's businesses up and down Main Street. Of course, none of us knew where they were coming from. And, you know, they were maybe oh, 12 inches in diameter. So it wasn't like they were really big. But next thing you know, there was one at City Hall. Eventually, people figured out who was behind these oranges. It was a group of artists. And when their cover was blown, they weren't slapped with hefty fines or jail time. Bujalski says they were invited to a city council meeting and honored for their work. Now the city has oranges painted on hundreds of buildings. There's even an annual orange festival inspired by the street art. Dunedin doesn't have a graffiti ordinance, we should say. Bujalski says it's not really a problem there, and the community embraces street art. Whether you embrace a story you hear on Colorado Matters or prefer to keep your distance, let us know what you think of what you hear. Again, CPR News on Facebook. On Twitter, we're at Colorado Matters. You can comment beneath individual articles at cprnews.org or fire off an email, news at cpr.org. Nathan, back to you. Thanks, Ryan. West Central Colorado has seen the worst of the coal slump. Two out of three mines have closed in the North Fork Valley since 2013, and this area isn't counting on President Donald Trump's campaign promises to bring back the coal industry. As CPR's energy reporter Grace Hood explains, regional leaders are betting big on solar, organic farming, and recreation. Scott Burns is like the majority of Delta County voters. In 2016, nearly 70 percent cast their ballots for President Donald Trump. He wasn't thrilled about his Trump vote, though. The American public was presented two plates of a questionable cuisine, 
and you were forced to pick one. Burns was a mine supervisor at Elk Creek. He lost his job in 2013 after a fire closed the mine. His decades in the industry had taken a physical toll, so he wasn't willing to jump to another mine. One day you're a boss at a coal mine, and the next day you're a custodian at the local high school. Now, I chose that, and I choose to be there. Burns is one of 730 laid-off coal workers who have either left or found new work in the valley. Automation and cheaper natural gas have hit the industry hard. Democratic State Senator Kerry Donovan says there has been federal support for coal communities hit hard by the decline, but it hasn't flowed as freely to her region. Those federal programs have focused on the more traditional, you know, West Virginia, Appalachia communities that we traditionally think of as coal country. So I think in Colorado, it's really going to fall more on the shoulders of the state. In downtown Delta, there's hope that state grants will transform a former grocery store into a business innovation hub. 22,000 square feet in the building. Jim Vantrello is the financial officer for Delta County School District. It also runs the technical college here that used to offer mine training courses. Vantrello says many economic hopes for the future hinge on this building. Goodyear isn't going to walk in here and build a plant. If we're going to continue here and we're going to develop, we're going to have to do it ourselves. The center will have classrooms and a commercial kitchen. Ventrello says an entrepreneur could buy tomatoes from an organic farmer and turn them into salsa, or the center could help existing organic producers develop a new product and hire more workers. What can we do to help them grow their business? And that's the idea behind this. It's an idea that could help existing organic businesses. They could follow a path like Big B's Juices and Hotchkiss. Over the decades, the company evolved from a shed that sold fruit to agritourism, juice, and a hard cider line. That's the sound of apple juice fermenting. Sean Larson moved to the region from Utah in 2010 and helped launch the hard cider line. You know, I've always said you can't move here if you don't bring your own job. The expansion means Big B's buys more tires from a local store for trucks. And it's also brought on a laid-off coal worker to fix equipment. We sell products nationwide, and, you know, we have that reach, but also affect our community. About 1,000 people live in Hotchkiss. Every job and order counts. East of town, a coal train passes by a solar training school. I remember times where it seemed like there was 10 a day for a while. Solar Energy International's Chris Sutton says those 10 trains a day are now down to just two. Sutton and SEI have offered to retrain miners to install solar panels, but there are few actual jobs in the valley. If coal miners here want to pursue solar jobs, they're going to have to probably move. The high poverty level in Delta County means people here don't have disposable income for rooftop solar. SEI is trying to change that with a project to make solar more affordable. The local utility here is appealing to the federal government to add more solar and hydropower. We're not talking about building something gigantic here. Tom Herkamp is a board member with Delta County Economic Development. He says industries you may associate with Blue America, like renewable energy, are just the beginning. To him, economic salvation of the North Fork Valley doesn't fall along political lines. I don't want to be a category. I want creativity. And I think that is more important than locking yourself into a political philosophy. 
As a longtime resident of conservative Delta County, Herkamp says he's seen a lot of ups and downs. In the end, he hopes good planning and open minds will put his region back to work. I'm Grace Hood, Colorado Public Radio News. You might think of Nashville as a hot spot for country music, not Denver. But bands like Bison Bone are here to change that. The quintet has roots in Oklahoma and Texas, but they're based in the Mile High City. And their debut album, History of Falling, is out today. This is their song, Walls. Courtney Whitehead is the band's lead singer-guitarist. Courtney, welcome. Hey, how's it going, Nathan? It's good. Uh, You like to describe Bison Bone as cosmic country. What exactly does that mean? That's really, uh, that's a pretty old term. It's really just a way um, to not get uh, ourselves put in any type of box. Um, Especially with our record, it's 10 songs, it's 47 minutes long, a traditional record, a traditional country record. Um, of 10 songs is going to be more on around 30 minutes. So um, a little bit longer. Yeah. You know? Yeah, we like to stretch it out a, a little bit and uh, bridge the gap between genres, um, a little bit of psychedelic blues and roots rock in there, Americana. Um, and it's just a way to um, kind of put that umbrella over all of that and and not have to go through all the all the genre, comma, genre, comma, genre. Right, right, right. <laughs> what are some of your influences then in, in creating this music? Oh, man. It's it's changed as I've grown up quite a yeah. bit. Um, when I was younger, obviously, um, George Jones and Graham Parsons and Lefty for Sale and, and those guys. Then as I got older, it went more the alt-country way towards uh, Uncle Tupelo and Sunvolt and uh, then, you know... Uh, Lucero and, and those guys, and, and now more, uh, you know, Johnny Fritz and yeah. Kurt Vile, those those type of dudes. So take us back to your early days as a musician. Your career started in Western Oklahoma, uh, and you were performing in barns. I understand. Uh, what was that like? I wouldn't necessarily call it performing, but <laughs> <laughs> um, it was a lot of fun. Um, we would just uh, me and my buddies that uh, we'd be play by ourselves. You know, Monday through Thursday, uh, apartments, house parties, and then Friday night, we'd go back up, uh, an old-timer, and he'd sing, you know, Billy Joe Shaver and old Hank Williams songs, and uh, we'd just be his backing band, and then uh, he'd take 30 minutes off to go dance with his wife and drink some more moonshine and let us have at it, and we'd have our uh, our spot in the in the show. Yeah. And so this is definitely someone older than you, much older than you. Yeah. Which was a really, um, taught us a lot about life and songs and songwriting and, um, that lifestyle. Growing up in the South, you must've heard a lot of country music growing up. Uh, what about this genre appealed to you? The songwriting, the stories, the storytelling for sure. Um, especially, uh, Northeastern Oklahoma, um, JJ Kale, uh, Leon Russell, those guys, but um, more than like my dog left me and my you know truck won't start that type of thing. Yeah, more than that, though. Way more than that. <laughs> yeah, none of that stuff has ever appealed to me. Um, 
us, you know, that's why that's kind of where the cosmic country thing comes from. Cause I don't, it's, we play country for people who don't like country. Uh, we don't, you know, I'm not taking my girl down the river. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we we want to talk about real things that are happening right now. Yeah. You moved from Oklahoma first to Dallas and then to Denver where you formed Bison Bone in 2015 Two years later, you have your first album, History of Falling. Uh, this is the opening song called 22. You've been playing shows in Colorado for a while now. Uh, how has the transition into Colorado's music scene been for you? Are, are, are you finding there's an audience for the style of music? Oh, definitely. Um, last year was a, a really good year for us. Um, we got to play all the festivals, a lot of good shows, got to play with a lot of buddies. Um, it's The re- reception here has been great. Um, even bands and friends that play in bands that are nowhere n- near our what I would call our genre of music um, we go to their shows, they come to ours, and we'll open up for them, they'll open up for us. Um, it's, been, it's been really great. It's been really welcoming. Now, uh, was there a reason to move to Denver, or just because you wanted to get, the, get into the scene? Um, there are a lot of reasons. Uh, personal reasons. Um, the boys I was playing with in Dallas were kind of um, wanting to settle down, and um, I wasn't wanting to do that. And I didn't want to be in a, in a Texas country band um and what's not what's not like about colorado or denver yeah you listen to colorado matters from cpr news we're speaking with denver musician courtney whitehead he's the founder and lead singer of bison bone whose debut album history of falling is out today Uh, let's hear some more music from this album this is the song will it grow Uh, psychedelic kind of in your first answer there's definitely some influences that in this song how did you arrive at this sound um really that's just uh you know I, I take something of the band and um have at it boys you yeah. know and a lot of that was just them um turning knobs and uh you know um 
just kind of worked itself out like that. We just try to get out of our own way and let our influences come out and um, keep our antenna up. Yeah, kind of like wah, 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 while you're here and that kind of... Yep, yep. That's our boy Eric Rudnick there, twisting on the knobs. Yeah, you you recorded the 10 songs on this album all live in, yep. in the studio and not many overdubs or reworked parts. That wah, wah, wah is happening live while you're, you're playing the music. Um I've been told that's the way a lot of artists used to record their albums in the old days because I kind of had to. Uh, but you choose to do it all live still today. Uh, why does that work for Bison Bone? Well, we like to do a lot of things the way they used to be done. Um, but uh, money, time, getting in there, um, knocking it out quick, documenting where we are as a band right now. Um, and You learn a lot that way. You get better that way. Um, and... I don't think Picasso photoshopped any of his paintings. <laughs> right. Now, well, if you, uh, let's say, make a few more albums uh, and you have that option to do overdubbing and things like that, is that a possibility for you? You're going to stick to what you're doing now? Um, I would like to mostly stick to tracking them live. But um, with more money and more time, we would definitely do more more overdubs and more takes. I mean, most of these songs we did within a couple takes. Yeah. So you're getting it pretty live. So how long did it take to, to finish up the album? Uh, tracking, two days. Two days. Yeah. I want to end with uh, your song, Here I Stand. Uh, can you tell me what it's about? Imminent uh, domain, um, kind of standing up for yourself, um, no matter what it, what it be, fin- financially not selling out. Um, all of those things. Let's hear it. Look out my window and what do I see? Tall glass buildings and miles of concrete. Courtney Whitehead is the lead singer and guitarist for Bison Bone. The band's debut album, History of Falling, is out today, and the band plays tomorrow at the High Dive in Denver. You can listen to music from Bison Bone at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.